Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Vadim's Jackie Gardina and Mitch Winnick. So welcome to the first episode of Sidebar, and a podcast that's going to focus on individual and constitutional rights. My name is Jackie Gardina. I'm the Dean of the Colleges of Law located in Santa Barbara and Ventura, California. And I'm here with my co-host. My name is Mitch Winnick and I'm the Dean of Monterey College of Law. So Jackie, tell us about today's program and, and why we invited David Pepper to be our inaugural guest. Well, as I stated, we're gonna be focused on constitutional and civil rights and the 2022 midterms will play a significant role in shaping those rights in the next several decades. So I wanted to start with a right that many of us take for granted, a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And as soon as I read David Pepper's book, Laboratories of Autocracy, and I listened to some of his two-minute whiteboards on Twitter, and you can follow him at, at David Pepper. David Pepper is a lawyer, writer, political activist, elected official, and professor. And although he has written multiple political thriller fiction books, he's here to speak with us about his nonfiction book, Laboratories of Autocracy. Sadly, the book reads like a political thriller, but it's, it's about protecting our democracy. So welcome, David. Thank you. It's great to be with you guys today. So we're going to dive right in so that you can help set up where we are right now before we talk about ways that we might be able to reclaim our democracy. What prompted you to write this book? Funny you ask that because I had no intention of writing a book last year. I've, I've written a number of novels. I had one that came out in August and I was you know, happy with that. But about 18 months ago, just watching these state houses engaging in the attacks on democracy and the uh, legislating of extremism. I'm quite active on Twitter, and I almost tweeted something about how they were behaving as laboratories of autocracy, playing off that line from Justice Brandeis. And I was about to press tweet and send it, and I thought, you know, that's bigger than a tweet. I, I Maybe I should write an op-ed about this, because people need to know that the attack on democracy is largely happening institutionally at the state house level. That's where it's happening. While everyone else is focused on January 6th, my worry is it's the, the real damage at the heart of democracy is at the state level. And so I, I started writing an op-ed and before I knew it, I had a chapter. And then three months later, I had an entire book. So this was kind of out of the blue. Then I had a problem because I talked to a few publishers. They're like, oh, that's interesting, but it'll take us a year to get this out. I said, I don't have time. What is happening is happening right now. And if we don't all see it as immediately, it will continue to succeed, which is basically, as the book title says, state houses are the front line in the attack on democracy. And it is an attack on democracy. The heart of the attack on democracy are hundreds of state house members who we've never heard of every single day attacking democracy through you know, election laws, gerrymandering, uh, changing the way elections are run, attacking independent courts. And so the book really does intend to be a kind of a case study of Ohio told in a way that hopefully is more interesting than that most books you've ever seen about a statehouse. But it's really about the whole country 
in how unless we see the threat to democracy for what it is in state houses, we will never respond appropriately or effectively. The subtitle is a wake-up call from behind the lines. That really is what it tries to serve. David, what has the response been to the book? And, you know, I put the book out about a year ago, and I'm, I'm honestly been kind of honored by the response, which is all around the country. I have had Zoom meetings and talks with state after state after state that just like Ohio feel like they're essentially no longer at a functioning democracy at their state level. And they see the damage that's being done. And many people are starting to take the steps that we need to take to fight back. But we have to scale up those steps far greater than they are right now. David, you drill down in the book beyond just state houses. You, you talk about secretary of states. You talk about attorney generals. At the local level, uh, go a little deeper for us on that issue, because it, it really is more than just state house elections, isn't it? The state house, in many ways, is the most powerful institution in the attack on democracy. There are many other offices that also have impact, either because they have impact on the state houses, state Supreme Court, Secretary of State, or they have a direct impact on democracy itself. Where are some of the attacks on democracy right now happening? Banning of books. That's a that's a five alarm fire attack on democracy when a country starts banning books. Where is that going to play out? School boards and libraries. So all of a sudden, a school board position, whether it be a state or local, is part of the battle over democracy, and we better see it that way. I try and broaden people's viewpoint. It's about state houses and many other positions at the state level that impact state houses could be a check on those state houses. But it's also about all sorts of other positions that have some lever over democracy. David, what are the steps that can be taken to move these levers of democracy? We'll often say, oh, you got to run. We need people running for the state house because that's our bench for the future because they may run for Congress someday. And my response is, well, that may or may not be true, but that's the front line for democracy now. It's not only about will that state rep someday run for Congress. Those positions impact democracy right now. And so we better take them seriously and get into these jobs to fight for democracy because the other side is trying to get in these jobs to undermine democracy. That's the battle. And like you said, it's local and it's state far before we even begin talking about Congress. So, David, for those people who haven't read your book or aren't as attuned to what's happening across the country, you really focus on Ohio in your book, even though you mentioned that it's happening across the country. Just describe for people what's happening in Ohio that has you so concerned. Sure. Well, let me start by saying I was in law school and I'm a law grad. In law school, my classmates and I went to school out east, they named me most likely to be president of the Cincinnati Board of Tourism because all I did was brag about Ohio. So what I'm about to tell you is very painful for that president of tourism to talk about. We are in a downward spiral of extremism and horrific public outcomes. And, and that is happening all around the country. Once you have the systems that we see in places like Ohio of highly gerrymandered legislatures, suppression of the majority like they did toward the, the Obama coalition, politicians who never worry about an election their whole careers because their districts are guaranteed. What you see very quickly tied into that broken system is corruption and a decline of public outcomes because there's no longer an incentive. If you're guaranteed your reelection, 
You don't need to improve schools or wages or healthcare infrastructure to get reelected. You just don't. You need to keep the big boys happy who give you money. You need to keep the extremists happy to avoid the next primary. But what you don't worry about are public outcomes. And because of that, because the incentives in these broken, undemocratic systems are so warped, what you see is a downward spiral of all the things we thought public service was about. Can you describe some of the public outcomes that you're concerned about, David? So in Ohio, I go through the first chapter of my book. It's a very painful chapter. It's about how this great state, the home of the Wright brothers, the home of the Cleveland Clinic, the things I would brag about when I got that Board of Tourism Award. We are plummeting our public education system. We were ranked fifth in the country 15 years ago. We're now in the mid-20s. We have the highest level of student debt in the country. We have the highest African-American infant mortality rate in the country. Our health outcomes are in the 40s. This isn't an accident. It's not a coincidence. Once you have a disalignment or a misalignment between public outcomes and getting reelected, the outcomes plummet and the corruption goes up. Why should this alarm people? One reason why this should alarm people is because this is a state that voted for Obama twice. This is a state that on the on the actual merits has incredible public assets, incredible public resources, incredible institutions like the Cleveland Clinic. So if a state that voted for Obama twice can plummet into extremism and disastrous public outcomes when we have so many strengths, it can clearly happen anywhere. And that's why, you know, since I wrote my book, I've gotten emails and the book gets into other states too, but Ohio is sort of this giant case study of people saying, my God, everything you described is happening in my state of Tennessee or Iowa or, you know, Indiana. And I get I get these from all over where they're saying we're seeing the same downward spiral. And in Kansas, they went down to four days of school a week. In Texas, they had a privatized energy system. So people froze to death in the wintertime. In Texas, of all places, you know, in, in Michigan, they couldn't keep the roads paved. So Gretchen Whitmer ran on that. You're seeing a basically a massive run where private players through these state houses are grabbing public assets for themselves. And the public is the one paying the price for that. And Ohio, it's happening in an extreme level. We're talking today with David Pepper, the author of Laboratories of Autocracy. We're going to take a short break with a word from our sponsors. The future of law is protecting personal information online. It's ensuring patients' rights are protected. It's knowing how to manage your own business. At the Colleges of Law, you'll find programs built for change to address whatever the future of the legal industry might bring. The Colleges of Law, built for change, built for you. Find your future at collegesoflaw.edu. Is your skill level in desktop software inhibiting productivity as a current or future legal professional? Would an elevated understanding of basic office technologies such as Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF help streamline your workday? Law School prepares students to serve clients with a breadth of specialized knowledge within the legal realm. Law practice affords us the wisdom only experience can teach. But what about the technical skills that bring it all together? Who's addressing that need? 
The Legal Technology Assessment, LTA, by ProCertus is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade. The LTA pairs competence-based assessments with synchronous active learning to provide effective, tailored training. ProCertus is reshaping online learning with a market-unique platform and approach to the upskilling and validation of skill sets for all legal professionals. Come check us out at www.procertus.com. Sailor Legal Service has been on the California Central Coast since 1991, under the same ownership and with the same capable team. Sailor is a 100% woman-owned business. If you call Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, the same capable team will answer. You can communicate with the same person each time you contact Sailor. For your orders to subpoena records, on-site copying, process serving, and court services. SailorLegal.com S-A-Y-L-E-R Legal.com Welcome back. Today's guest on Sidebar is David Pepper the author of Laboratories of Autocracy. It seems like for our audience, if they want to understand what's happening in their state, they should look to the public outcomes like Mississippi um, Capital not having safe drinking water uh, or the like. A corruption of public service put to work for private ends. And we just all sit and stare as our public outcomes collapse. And it's happening all over the country. Jackie, let me just clarify one thing, because, David, you're, you're talking about examples, and you're not particularly picking on a partisan politics on this. You're talking about corruption at the local level, regardless of which party. Yeah, once you, I think gerrymandering and lack of accountability, I put this in the book, I think it poisons politics everywhere. Now, I'm not a both sides person. It's more extreme right now on, on the right. But I actually think any system, having run for office in close districts, I understood when I was running, hey, I better deliver good public outcome or I won't get reelected. I better be mainstream or I won't get reelected. I'm in a district that, that now that was who I was anyway. But the incentives lined up for good public service. I think in any system, and this is why I believe in like a national standard around gerrymandering. So nobody does it. I think you quickly fall off into bad public service and warped incentives in these undemocratic systems. So, you know, I think you could, if you found an intensely democratically gerrymandered state, yeah, you, you'd see similar problems. But overall, I think you see it right now far more on the right than the left. But yeah, undemocratic politics, lack of accountability in politics will lead to this downward spiral wherever it happens. I do agree with that. Yeah. And, and I want to, because all of these states are having elections every year, we're, we're coming up on one in, in just a few days. So in your book, you use the term competitive autocracy to describe what's happening in Ohio and in other states. Describe what you mean by that term. So this is a, um, so every once in a while, and you'll appreciate this, I, I stick my foot into a little of academia in, in my book, although a lot of it is, I'm trying to tell a good story because otherwise no one's going to ever read a book about state houses, right? Uh, I get into a little con law for your law listeners and law school listeners that, that um, even Larry Tribe agreed with. I was proud of that. But I also, the academics have come up with the term competitive autocracy to describe the best example of it is what Viktor Orban is doing in Hungary, where they, the new autocracy, in some places at least, isn't just saying, you know, 
we're dictators. The people have no say. They say we're going to basically fiddle or worse with enough of the institutions of democracy that the results are pretty much guaranteed, but you do look like you're going through an election. So the people don't reject it because they're like, well, we participated, we did vote, and the outcome is the outcome. So it's more accepted because there is a process. And Viktor Orban, in the way that he's done a number of things in Hungary, um, you know, really taken over the media, done some other things, he technically gets reelected. So it feels dem democratic from a small d. But the truth is, the election's guaranteed. And that is what competitive autocracy is. There, that leads to a sense of competition, even though in the end there really isn't. It's an appearance of it. Why should we care about what Viktor Orban is doing in Hungary? We are about to have elections in Ohio on a both the congressional and a state house map that don't only preordain the outcome of the elections, but actually violate Ohio's constitutions per the current Ohio Supreme Court. We are better at seeing these problems when it's another country doing it than when it's our own country. But the parallels to our current state house democracies in our country to these other countries, they're almost exactly the same. But we don't see it that way because we're, you know, we're kind of privileged. We think that democracy's just fine in our country. We don't like to see its flaws here that we see perfectly well elsewhere. But that competitive autocracy model is actually taking hold in states across this country as we speak. So David, three of us on this call are all lawyers. And I listen to you reference situations that you say are unconstitutional. And I wonder, what is the role that we as lawyers should be taking? Don't we have a higher standard of being more attuned to this, whether it's on the local, state, or federal level? Absolutely. And I greatly worry that if we don't, I'm a very laid back, kind of calmer guy. So when I hear some of what I say, I'm sure some people listen and think this guy's an alarmist. That's not me. Uh, but I am a lawyer. And a lot of what I'm viewing is through that lens, which is why I'm, I think, more troubled. Because I, I think we are dangerously close to losing the basic rule of law in this country. I really do. Here's an example. And, and I, that's why I call it out very clearly. I, I, like the, I like the old Truman quote. You know, people say I give them hell. I don't give them hell. I just tell the truth. and It feels like hell. How is this playing out in states? Right now in Ohio, we have a state legislature that has ignored the rulings of the Ohio Supreme Court all year long. The Ohio Supreme Court, which in the Ohio Constitution is given exclusive and sole and original jurisdiction over assessing whether or not the map drawn by the legislature adheres to the Ohio Constitution. That Ohio Supreme Court has said in every single opinion, you vote, you violate the Constitution. And the legislature simply ignores it and has placed upon our ballot, both state house and, and congressional maps, that the Supreme Court of Ohio has ruled violate our Constitution. Like That is not the rule of law. You're supposed to follow the law. It's so bad, by the way, and you'll you'll recognize this, that one of the justices of the Ohio Supreme Court that has found the maps to be okay every time is the son of the sitting governor who is a defendant in the cases. He doesn't recuse himself, and he votes for his dad's map every time. 
Again, as a lawyer, your first year law students would say, you can't be a judge on a case where your dad is a defendant. That's outrageous. That's an ethical violation as clear as any could be. It's not discretionary. It's a mandatory recusal. But he's doing it in a case where he could very well be the swing vote on the democracy of the state. So we are seeing legal abnormalities to say to understate it of an intense degree. And so as a lawyer, I actually do think it's incumbent on all of us to call it out. If we are talking about protecting the rule of law, that is truly a horrifying scenario. However, the general public rarely knows when these types of situations occur. Who should be the public or legal watchdog? I think the Ohio State Bar Association should be horrified by the erosion of the rule of law. And as a practicing lawyer, I'm getting more and more worried that unless enough lawyers speak out about this, our profession is going to be deeply damaged by the sense that the rule of law is becoming just pure politics. And in the end, if it is, that isn't the rule of law. So I think we as lawyers and law students and those who teach and those who went to law school to believe in the law have an especially, you know, and this is why I do what I do. We have an especially sort of high duty to insist that the rule of law still exists. And that, frankly, even if it's at the risk of criticizing a sitting Ohio Supreme Court justice, I will do it because I don't think we can ever normalize what is essentially illegal or unethical behavior at the highest level. I think it's a huge duty on all of our shoulders. I appreciate that. And that is a clip we will be taking back into our our law school classrooms and our con law classrooms. You can guarantee that. But let me ask you one other follow-up on that. To what extent do you think there's a lack of action on the local level, which I think may just be an excuse? When we look at a Supreme Court justice like Justice Thomas, who doesn't recuse himself from activities that his wife is clearly and publicly involved in, do you think it gives cover for those that say, well, if you could do it at the U.S. Supreme Court, maybe not in exact parallel, but certainly in that flavor, then why would you call us out on the local level for not doing it? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's all connected. We have a lack of accountability crisis right now in many parts of, of politics and government. And when you see at the highest levels, a, a, an Ohio Supreme Court justice behaving so lawlessly, so unethically on a case, it could, on cases that could determine the future of abortion access in Ohio or the democracy of Ohio itself or Clarence Thomas. Yeah, it, it is it is normalizing totally unethical behavior. Now, the irony is lower down. The Ohio Supreme Court actually holds county judges accountable when they violate ethics rules. But we have a hole in the system where we have at the Supreme Court of a state or United States level, a self-policing that that is supposed to happen that doesn't happen. So does this behavior discourage people from speaking out? But yeah, I do think it's creating a sense that people just shrug their shoulders. Uh, People just watch. Again, if a local county judge had his dad or her, her dad in the courtroom, and ruled, you're innocent, we'd all say that's insane. But it's happening again in one way at the U.S. Supreme Court with the spouse and another way at the Ohio Supreme Court. It is getting normalized, and that's very dangerous. Again, if that was happening in some small Eastern European country, we'd all say, my God, what a crazy country that is. We're 
We're going to take a break now to hear from our sponsors. You ought to be a lawyer. How many times have you heard this from your relatives, friends, and coworkers? So what's stopping you? Our family of California-accredited law schools that include Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, Kern County College of Law, and Empire College of Law provide on-site and hybrid online evening weekday classes that provide you the option to continue working while attending law school. The LSAT is not required to apply, and a waiver is considered for applicants with an associate's or bachelor's degree and a strong academic record. We're currently accepting applications for our 2023 spring and summer semesters. For more information, go to montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. Your community, your law school, your future. Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Use Trellis to discover how judges have ruled on similar motions or to gain insight into opposing counsel, prospects, and clients. To learn more, or to request a trellis demo, reach out to Mike Swarves at mike at trellis.law or visit our website, trellis.law. Law school isn't just for lawyers. The Master of Arts in Law degree from the Colleges of Law was designed to empower working professionals to become innovative problem solvers in careers that intersect with the law. The legal field is more than what happens in a courtroom after all. The Colleges of Law, built for change, built for you. Learn more at collegesoflaw.edu. Welcome back. We're speaking to David Pepper, author of Laboratories of Autocracy. Let's go back to the question that I asked earlier about Hungary. Why should the rest of the country care about what's happening in Ohio? A badly gerrymandered Ohio congressional map could mean a 13-2 Republican-Democratic delegation. 13-2. A fair map in Ohio that, violate, that, that follows the Ohio Constitution could be 8-7 or 9-6. That could be the difference in the House majority in Washington. These ethical dilemmas aren't just academic or aren't just sort of legal niceties. They have huge impact on consequences, which is one reason I think one side is willing to to go through them, knowing full well they're violating the ethics rules because the consequences of them being involved in that case are so significant. So, David, you spend um, a lot of chapters in your book kind of explaining what's happening now, but you also spend time talking about what we can do to reclaim democracy. So, I'm right. because I have to say it was uh, somewhat depressing. Uh, I, I feel as if I'm someone yeah. who's... <laughs> who's, I who's fairly well um, aware of what's happening, but having it <laughs> laid out for me in that book, everything from local journalism and the loss of that and the effect on that to the corruption and, and the other things that you bring up was was challenging for the very reasons that you talk about, which is we like to think of our our democracy as something that is protected in, in ways that aren't in other uh, countries. So 
reclaiming our democracy. Let's talk about what are the steps that we need to take to reverse what's going on. So I very intentionally wrote my book as a splash of cold water for people to see it because, and this is, I'll, I'll just speak to myself. It's a very privileged view that we have had in recent decades that democracy is just all well and good no matter what. That is not our nation's history. That is certainly not black history of this country. And it's certainly not world history. Democracy is always contested. And I think the reason the book in many ways is sobering is because it's sort of a wake up call. If you if we all grew up thinking that it's just magically there, it's because we haven't dug deep enough to realize it's not. Our entire national history has been a contest, an arm wrestling match, often won by those attacking democracy against those who would preserve it. We also have this very painful history of our country of a fierce backlash, often anchored in white supremacy whenever a diverse democracy arises, be it after the Civil War, where there were huge numbers of black registered voters in the South, often outnumbering white registered voters in Louisiana and other states. Well, that led to a fierce backlash, the KKK and Jim Crow, to make sure that that new majority didn't run the show. Same thing happened after the um, civil rights, voting rights laws of the 60s, the Southern strategy. Obama was the latest thing that that sparked that fierce backlash. We are living still in that time. So, yeah, the book is, I think, sobering, but I think it's the appropriate wake up call. Don't be in a bubble assuming that we are just living in some automatically intact democracy. That is not the world we live in. We all wish it were. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your insight with us. It was a fascinating conversation, and I'm looking forward to your next book. David Pepper, thank you for coming on our Sidebar program today. And I'm looking forward to our next podcast session when you talk with us about possible solutions to these attacks on democracy. Mitch, one of the reasons why I thought it was so important for us to start our show, not in January, but in November before the midterms, is in part because of the reading I was doing um, with Laboratories of Autocracy. It was so important for me to get out the word that the elections are key to those rights that you and I want to talk about and really want to educate people about. So having David Pepper as our first guest was something that I was so excited about because I really think that he does a great job of having a book that's accessible and that really lays out what is happening right now in the United States at the state level and quite honestly, uh, at the federal level as well. Jackie, I couldn't agree more in reading his book and in listening to him today to, to not only take the current elections to heart, but he makes a very compelling argument and cautionary tale that we do need to take our role as voters, as citizens, as lawyers, as law professors a little more seriously and not take for granted that this, this wonderful experiment that we've called our Republican Repub, uh, Democratic Republic, 
will just exist because it exists because all along the way each of us have done our part to take our responsibility seriously to vote register for register voters and get engaged in the process uh, fortunately the depressing part as he mentioned about this cautionary tale we will see in part two does have some recommendations of what we should do. Yeah, and that was really important for me as well. Although his book at the beginning is very sobering, it it ends with that call to action. And I think, Mitch, you bring up really something important uh, as legal educators. I think David makes a really good point about what the role of lawyers are uh, it, during this time. But as legal educators, you know, we teach our students to be able to look at multiple perspectives and to argue and understand the uh, the argument coming from both sides, but to recognize at times that there may not be a both sides to a particular issue. And, and I think we're seeing that play out right now when it comes to democracy. Is there another side to this argument about our system and about democracy? Well, I think he tells us that we all need to look up the word of autocracy. He didn't use that word lightly. And that gives us the the reason to be worried about the other side. And as we do in class, I'm not going to give the definition of that. That's the homework for listeners after part one of this. Go look up autocracy and then think about how that applies to the elections that are going to happen here in a few days and over the next few years. And I know that Mitch and I are really interested in hearing about your reactions to this particular show. So you can certainly reach out to us on Twitter, on Instagram, Facebook, and tell us what's on your mind. You can also go to the sidebarmedia.org website and you'll see how to reach us via email. And you can certainly send us your comments or your questions or your concerns, as well as ideas for future episodes. Because what we want to do here is really educate people and ourselves about what's going on in the world. And Jackie, we actually would like to hear from our listeners by joining in on our What's on Your Mind section. We have a What's on Your Mind invitation on our website at sidebarmedia.org. And also hashtag what's on your mind on Twitter, Facebook, and our other social media platforms. I want to thank uh, Legal Talk Network for taking a risk on two talkative deans. Thank you for joining us on Sidebar today for our inaugural show. I also would like to thank our sponsors who helped make this available, Presertus, Sailor Legal Services, the Colleges of Law and Jackie Gardena and Monterey College of Law. Our program today is produced by David Eakin, who also composed and performed all of our music. Also, thank you to GoGo Zoger, who is our social media director, managing our gateway to our growing podcast listener community. And I want to thank um, our new audience for joining us on Sidebar. We hope that our discussion today reinforces why we believe that our individual and constitutional rights should never be taken for granted. Along with my co-host Mitch Winnick, this is Jackie Gardena inviting you to join us for a new sidebar programs on the 
first and third Saturday of each month on the Legal Talk Network. For more information on Jackie, Mitch, and Sidebar, go to sidebarmedia.org and join us at the Sidebar. California accredited law schools, including the Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law, provide affordable, quality legal education in evening online and on-site classes. Our law school graduates qualify to sit for the California bar exam and upon passing are licensed as California attorneys. For more information about attending a California accredited law school near you, go to calawschools.org. That's calawschools.org.